All right, we're back. One second. All right. It's uh, lovely to have you here uh, today and to be all sitting together. Make yourselves comfortable during a little talk. You can sit zazen and listen or you can just relax and listen. This is, uh, we don't stand on formalities here. My teacher Nishijima used to say that uh, you can't give a talk during Zazen because Zazen is just Zazen. But if you'd like to sit Zazen and keep your ears wide open and let the words pass through, that's good too. Some teachers do that. And that leads to our subject today, which is tradition. You know, uh, I have a, a joke I tell that if you go to a Japanese uh, Zen temple, they'll show you how things have been done for a thousand years. But if you go to the other temple next door, they'll show you something completely different sometimes and show tell you that that's the way things have been done for a thousand years. The fact is that traditions change. The Buddha said all things, composite things in this world are constantly changing. That includes some of Buddhism. There are aspects of Buddhism that are timeless beyond space and time, beyond change or no change. There are aspects of these teachings, these practices, the cultures in which we find ourselves that change. Buddhism has changed. The Buddha changed. He was a young man. And then he was an enlightened middle-aged man and then he was an old man and then he left this visible world but we also say there are aspects of the Buddha that were never born and never died that are beyond all the things we consider visible change in this world so there are things that change and I don't want to say things that don't, because sometimes in Buddhist philosophy people get all hung up on things like that. But let's just say there are things that change and that there are things that are beyond all thought of change. I don't want to say permanent, but beyond all change. Timeless. But I'd like to talk about the things that change. One thing that changes is our lives. Just in the past week at all, so many people have written to Tree Leaf, our dear friends, people we love, and said their child has died, their wife is sick, I am sick. And I'd like to 
reach out to each one of them and take that away. I'm sure the Buddha, I'm sure every teacher of Buddhism through all of time, when someone they care about came to them, would have loved to have the power to reach out and take that away. To say, your son who's died will be with you. Your your wife's sickness will be healed. All we can do sometimes is offer an embrace, offer to dedicate our practice feeling kind of helpless because we're human beings and we don't have magic powers. But at the same time, you know, the Buddha This is what's so amazing about this practice. While he knew that this mortal life is never about escaping sickness, growing old, people we love dying, our own dying someday, while the Buddha knew there was nothing in his power to take that away, you know what? He discovered something that takes it away takes it away because of that that is beyond change that that is beyond sickness and health and birth and death and time And the Buddha knew, and all the Buddhist teachers knew, that if they could get people to realize that, they could, in a sense, get them to see that while there is sickness and growing old and life and death in this world, there is also something beyond all that. And it's true. call it a way of seeing things, enlightenment, Satori, Buddha, Buddha nature. There's so many names that people have tried to put on this. Maybe some people in other religions will call it God, emptiness. There is something that sweeps up, sweeps in all the suffering in this world of loss and gain. Uh, peace holds all the broken pieces of this world. A kind of joy of just seeing that this world of sometimes happiness and sometimes tears is somehow okay. Big okay. 
So the Buddha, the teachers, never found a way to take away someone's cancer or someone's personal tragedy in their lives. But they found a way to do exactly that, too. All at once. So you see, these teachings are amazing. Just amazing. And this is, I, I believe, something that has been discovered again and again, generation after generation. But also there has been change in the form of these teachings generation to generation. And I think it's time for another change. These teachings changed as they moved from India to China onto various cultures and eras primitive, I would say primitive, that's a relative description, but let's say old traditional agricultural societies, I don't want to call them primitive, they were just different. Uh, now we've come west, modern industrial consumer media societies, democracies, and this has changed Buddhism. We're in an age of science, Science that sometimes does very right and can put a man on a moon, and science, as we've discovered with that little nuclear reactor that's just up the road from here, can sometimes go very, very wrong. But we live in an age of science. And Buddhism must adapt to all this, as I like to say, without throwing the baby Buddha out with the bathwater. And part of my, what do I want to say, mission or calling in my heart is to push Buddhism a little bit in that direction. I want to to see Buddhism continue to thrive and grow and flourish and reach so many people. But I also think in order to do so, we have to keep some things that are very, very good from the past. We certainly have to keep that timeless, placeless view that is beyond all cultures, beyond all times, beyond all individual people. But among the trappings of Buddhism, the way it's expressed, all the stuff around me, from the statues to the robes to the way some of the teachings are presented, we keep some of it because it still has meaning. It's our tradition. We change some of it and make new traditions, expressing these timeless teachings in new ways. And we very clearly abandon some teachings from the past that may now be not appropriate to these times in this culture. This year my big project is to 
write a book. A lot of you may have already read the book in a sense because it's going to be a lot of the things I write and post um, at Tree Leaf that's going to be the real basis for it. But I want the book to be, in some sense, uh, a pretty radical statement. It's also affirming of this Buddhist way. It's going to be called I Don't Believe in Buddha by Jundo Cohen, Buddhist priest. A guide for Buddhist skeptics. Last time I posted uh, in the Buddhist blogosphere a posting called I Don't Believe in Buddha, people just looked at the title in the first couple of sentences and they got really mad at me because they didn't really read what I was saying. This, the essay began, I don't believe in Buddha. I don't believe in all the magic hocus-pocus stories that you read in a lot of the Buddhist texts. At least I don't believe that they actually happened. And people got so mad at me. Well, you're a Buddhist priest. What are you talking about? Don't you have faith in Buddha? Don't you uh, believe in our traditions? You're, you're a heretic. Burn you at the stake. I don't think Buddhists would burn anyone at the stake, but... Well, a lot of finger-wagging in my direction. Because they didn't read the rest of what I said. I said, but I believe those stories of magic Buddhas, incredible events and miracles, speak to the human condition. They're myths. There are fantastic stories that convey something beyond the mere words. They're true. Like I often say, I believe in, in, in canon Bodhisattva, like I believe in Santa Claus, I tell my son, not that there may actually be in space this great celestial canon Bodhisattva, but every time there's an act of compassion in this world, an act of generosity, an act of selflessness, that is canon Bodhisattva. Every time there's giving, that is Santa Claus. That's how I believe. And I also said, I believe in Buddha because of what I said before, these teachings. I know these teachings. I know the value of these teachings. I know this timeless, placeless, wondrous Buddha that sweeps in all our suffering. Yes, I believe in Buddha. Just I don't believe in some of the literal truths of the Buddhist, Buddhist hocus pocus. I mean, this is how I've come to reading sutras. This is a wonderful collection. I try to read a sutra or a sutra section every morning. It's called The Treasury of Mahayana Sutras, translated by Chan. And I'm reading right uh, now uh, some sutras on emptiness. And they're amazing because they usually start, most sutras, with the most fantastic, unbelievable Steven Spielberg special effects like scene of Buddhas and miracles and fantastic events. And then they present some philosophy that makes real sense in a, in a Buddhist way. 
And then they go back to this incredible... Well, let me just read you a sample. This is uh, the Bodhisattva Manjushri is giving a lecture here and he invites all the... Well, let me just read it. At that time, certain leading divas in the assembly, divas are a kind of god, such as diva well-abiding mind, the wonderfully tranquil and, and diva humility, accompanied by 9,600,000,000 other divas, all of whom followed the Bodhisattva path, went together to Manjusri's dwelling place. When they arrived at his door, they made seven circu uh, circumambulations to the right, and then caused celestial flowers of the coral tree to rain down. The flowers raining down spread out in space to form a floral net, and then accumulated, forming a floral platform ten leagues high, shaped like a precious stupa. Manjushri picked up the floral platform and offered it to the world-honored one, the Buddha, and then by his miraculous powers he caused the space over all the lands in the billion-world universe to be spread with floral nets. The radiance of the flowers illuminated the whole billion-world universe, making it become clear and bright throughout. There also rained down celestial flowers of the coral tree. Then Bodhisattva Mahasattva Manjusri, graceful and serene, emerged from his dwelling. By his miraculous powers he caused, he further caused a wonderful throne made of the seven treasures to appear spontaneously in that place, a throne most majestic and beautiful. Adjusting his robe, Manjusri took his seat on the precious throne with a solemn look, etc., etc. Do I think that literally happened? I don't know. I tend to doubt it. Do I think that that story is expressing something wonderful? Yes. Do I think that these teachings are so wonderful that they are captured in that fantastic image? Oh yes, I certainly do. These teachings are wondrous and they fill this universe and whatever scientists now believe that there are a million billion universes out there. They fill those universes too. That's how fantastic these teachings are. But I think we need now to look at some of these older sutras like this if we're going to keep them realistically and see them for the poetic symbolic expressions that they are. I think it's important. Not everyone can believe in the literal truth of these stories like I think many people do. Still, when I was in China, people bowed down to golden statues of the Buddha because they believed that's their God. 
like most people who have faith, there's nothing less superstitious, shall we say, or less, that's a, I have to be cautious with that word too, but there's nothing less religious about Buddhism and more logical about Buddhism than other religions. Some people say, I'm interested in Zen because it's so logical and down to earth. Well, you've never perhaps actually then been to a Zen temple or seen how actual people come to the temple and worship Buddha and pray to Buddha the same as they pray to Jesus, the same as they pray to Madonna, uh, the Mother Mary, they pray to Canon, help my sick child, cure my sick wife, help my business. Whatever people need, they pray because I think this is ingrained in the human heart. I think that perhaps the majority of people in this world need to practice religion in that way. So I don't speak for everybody, but I want to speak for the skeptics out there who say, yes, I want to know the fantastic treasure which is these Buddhist teachings, but I cannot in my heart believe literally in all that other hullabaloo the magic, the hocus-pocus. I cannot, and I say, that's okay, I don't either. Not literally. At least I don't know. I'm, let's say I'm skeptical. I don't like to say I don't believe. I like to say I'm just very, very much, uh, I'm agnostic on the subject and skeptical. In any way, it's not important to my practice because I know the true magic. I know the true treasure. I know the real value and worth of this way. And that's what I try to convey here every day. Do not throw out the baby Buddha with the bathwater. This practice is filled with magic, a real magic, the magic of our being alive every day and the magic of, yes, a teaching that transcends life and death and sickness and health and time and place itself. It is there. There is something there as fantastic as Manjusri sitting on his throne. And I also think that a lot of the old teachings, rebirth, karma, you know, I think they can be saved or salvaged. And I think they can be well, let me let me just talk about that briefly. People often ask me about why bad things happen to folks. Why did my wife get sick? Why do I suffer with this illness? Why does my life not seem to go in a good direction despite all my good efforts? Why was there an earthquake that and a tsunami that killed so many seemingly innocent people in, in Asia, uh, in the South Asia and Japan this year. Why? Why do these things happen? Why do bad things seem to happen to good people? And different religions developed different ways of explaining that, talking about that. Some will say it's God's plan, and it might be. It might be. It might be written in a book somewhere. And pre-Buddhist culture, 
and the Buddha himself no doubt being part of that culture taught the belief in karma and rebirth that there is some shall we say chain of events playing out some kind of justice in this world bad things are happening now because of perhaps bad events of the past that you committed and this is payback time buddy I don't know about that I don't know about that perhaps it repeats life after life after life until we finally perfect ourselves dropping fully from our being all greed anger and ignorance becoming Buddhas until such time passing life after life trying to get it right could be I often say that in truth it's not so central to my practice Zen practice has traditionally been focused on this moment this life whether there are future lives or not live in a gentle way now whether there are future lives or not live free of greed anger and ignorance to the extent you can now to the extent you can whether there are future lives or not live knowing this place beyond birth and death if you can do that and there are future lives you'll be in good stead and if you can do that there are no future lives you're still in good stead it's still a wise free liberated way to live so I don't know about the literalness of rebirth but I will say this I actually think there are some arguments modern arguments assertions ways to look at these things when we don't have to completely reject the idea of karma and rebirth either now you're gonna have to buy the book to find out what I mean by that but now I'm just kidding the books probably going to uh, given away for free actually but let me give you a taste of what I mean even now I do think it's so unbelievably fantastic that we are here alive that something is afoot and when I practice Sazen I think I can taste that I think I can realize that. I don't want to sound... I saw Pat Robertson, the American evangelist, on the TV the other day, and he said, God speaks to him directly. And I mean really directly. God tells him things like uh, how the stock market's going to do and who the next president's going to be. Well, I don't think God talks to me in exactly so many details. But something in the Zen practice does whisper in my ear. There are things that can be seen when you sit long enough and one of those things that can be tasted can be pierced is the deep interconnection and wonder of this universe so vast universe upon universe just like Manjusri describes and somehow in all that 
amidst all the incredible factors that had to come together and seemingly need not have, here we are. Every star that made the elements, that made the molecules, that swept together through space and time, created from the Big Bang, that came together as worlds, and not just any world, our world, which was made by rocks bubbling through space in just the right way to create this little blue planet not too near the sun, not too far away in order to allow life to be a little closer to the sun, it would be too hot, there would be no water, a little further away it would be too cold, you can only have life in a certain zone of life in the universe and that is the planet where we are and all the events of evolution and all the events of history and all the events of everything in your own uh, genetic history of your parents and grandparents and their great-great-parents and the little monkeys and the little mice and the little fish who were before that all swimming together and if we be perfectly straight about it making love at the right time and crawling onto the earth at the right time and, and, and everything that happened including the rainy days and the sunny the happy days and the sad somehow all came together and here we are and if one thing one thing had been off if your great great parents had never met if the uh, little lizard crawling out of the, the goop who was your uh, great 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 ancestor had somehow uh, taken a left turn instead of a right turn and walked right into a volcano well as far as science knows you would not be here and yet you are yet we are something is afoot something is afoot do not for a moment believe that we popped up in the middle of space and time just by a roll of the dice. I mean it could have been, but what a roll, roll upon roll of the dice. A correct roll of the dice every second through all the ages of all of time. One bad roll anywhere down the line and seemingly you and I would not be here having this conversation now and yet here we are. I think there is an argument to be made for cause and effect and that something is playing out. Something is alive and we are it in this universe. It is not by chance that we are here. But anyway, this is getting into such a big topic that I'm going to leave it for another day. Just know that on the happy days and the sunny days, the days when your loved one dies, the day when your child is born, the day when you are happy, the day when you are sad, the day when you are healthy, the day when you are sick, the day when the sun rises, the day when the sun goes down, something is afoot, a great dance, as fantastic as Manjusri's throne 
with the celestial flowers. A miracle has occurred that we are here. Yes, something is afoot. Yes, it's a miracle. Yes, it's wondrous. And yes, our practice is to let it be, let it play out, let it dance. And we dance along with that dance. A happy dance, a sad dance, but we dance. We allow this dance, this great dance to play. The Buddha was right. There is a great system at work in this universe, playing out. And we are at the heart of it, I know. And there is also that beyond time, beyond birth, beyond death. We are that. We are that. Shall we sit for a few minutes?